You are listening to sermon audio from Grace Community Church of Gresham, Oregon. For more information about service times and ways to connect, visit us online at gracecc.net. Um, but uh, as we think about the passage we're going to look at today, we've been studying, uh, we've been going through the book of Daniel together, and just one of the things that I really enjoy as I, as I look, look at the, read the stories, uh, stories I've loved since I was a child, but, uh, but just looking at those dreams and, and just looking at what happens in the book. God is so big. He is so much greater than the emperors, and always there's nothing that happens that he didn't allow, that is, isn't, that is out of his hands. And uh, it's just amazing to see that. And one of the things that I really enjoyed seeing also in the book of Daniel that ties into what we're going to talk about today is how Daniel mentions the Son of Man that will come day come, that will one day come and set up his kingdom. And today is a very special day because uh, about 2,000 some years ago when Jesus came, he walked into the capital city of Jerusalem. And as he walked into this city, he was offering this kingdom. He was offering the kingdom of God to man. The promised kingdom was finally here. And so Jesus comes and he offers that. We're going to look at that. But the time back then when Jesus came, the, time, the times were very hard. Um, the Romans were oppressing the Jews, so the feeling of oppression was really, really hard. I, in the times that I've lived here in the U.S., I've never gotten the sense or that feeling of how bad it could be. Living abroad in other countries, in Bolivia, there were times when I was like, well, I'm not sure we're going to make it through tomorrow. tomorrow. Um, but this sensation of oppression was very heavy. The people were tired of the always increasing taxes. The Romans ruled with a heavy hand. There were rebellious anti-government groups that would come up, would rise, and would try to save their city or, or save part of their country, and they would just get crushed by the Romans. They would end up crucified. Men would die. It had been 400 years of silence since the, peop- since the people had heard from God through one of the prophets So it's pretty sad. And along comes this man named John the Baptist, kind of a hermit, kind of a a man dressed like a wild man. And he comes preaching this message. And he preaches this message. He says, the kingdom of heaven is near. It's near. Repent. So he kept preaching this message over and over. And he would even say, the one who comes after me. He is the king. I am unworthy to untie his shoes. That's, he's coming. He's on my heels. And then he would point to Jesus there. And, and, and Jesus pretty soon would pick up the very same message. And he would preach, the kingdom of heaven is near. Um, there's some interesting things about Jesus. When he comes on the scene before him, all the prophets They were courageous men. They were impressive men. Some performed great miracles like Moses splitting the Red Sea. Why? To call the people back to God, to to point them to God. Here Jesus comes along and there were some things about him as a prophet that were just very different from all the other prophets. For example, he claimed he could forgive sin. 
They brought a man who was paralyzed. They dropped him down through the ceiling before him. And uh, the first thing he did, even though he could have healed him right away, was he said, son, your sins are forgiven. That's not exactly what he came for, maybe, but okay. But some people heard him say this, and they're like, they were flabbergasted. How dare he? Who does he think he is? Only God can forgive sin. And yet Jesus claimed to do it, and to prove it, he heals the guy. Um, he claimed also to be the source of true satisfaction. One of my favorite stories in the Bible is found in John chapter 4, where Jesus is on his way to a town, and, and he has to stop at this well by a town named Samaria. And this woman comes out of the town, and she meets Jesus. If she had told you her story after she had met Jesus, it might have gone something like this. I came home one day. Kids were crying, if you had kids. Came to the table, there was a note. Got to the note, read the note, and it said, get your stuff and get out. What am I going to do? She picked up her things, her kids, left. She's got no job. She's wondering how she's going to make it. And along comes this guy who seems to be able to be a good provider. And he offers, why don't you come stay with, you know, let's, let's shack up. I'll provide for you. And so she does that, trying to meet her needs, trying to find satisfaction. It doesn't last very long, and it, it breaks up. Imagine what the kids might be going through. So she does it again and again and again, and she's on her fifth try trying to find satisfaction. And, and every day she has to go out to this well because she's got to drink water, got to do the laundry. So she goes out there again to do this monotonous thing, every, everyday thing, and she meets Jesus. And Jesus says to her, if you knew who I was, I'd give you water and you would never thirst again. Are you kidding? And so she says, well, why don't you give me some of this water? And Jesus, just to make sure things are level, he says, why don't you go call your husband? And uh, I'll give you this water. And I don't know what her intentions were, but she says, I have no husband. Maybe it was, you know, negative feelings towards the guy she was with, or maybe she was looking at, maybe Jesus would be the next guy. And so Jesus says, you're right. You don't have a husband. You've been with five guys, and the one you're with right now, he's not your husband. Instantly, the woman is kind of shocked. I mean, there was no Facebook. There's no Google to stalk her and find out what all about her. But he knows, he knows her life. And he's just opening it up. And she says, I perceive that you are a prophet. The only way you could know this is if God told you. You, you must be a prophet. I have some questions for you. You know, um, she asks some questions. She goes to the big one. And the big one is, I know that one day, one day the Messiah, the Savior, will come. And he will show us everything. He'll show me how to live this life. How to do it right. <laughs> and Jesus says, that's me. I'm, you're speaking with him. She's just stunned, shocked. And she believes instantly and she's got this relationship. I'm talking to you. The source of life 
finally here? She, she's so excited. She runs the town. She tells everybody, you've got to meet this Jesus. He took my life, just opened it up like it was nothing and showed me everything I've done wrong. He's showing me. You've got to come see. I can't just have this for me. You've got to come too. And so people come out and they're changed by who Jesus is, by who, by who Jesus was. So he claimed to provide. He was a source of true satisfaction he also claimed to be one with the Father. And when he said that, um, he said, I and the Father were one. He was, it was quite the claim. It was equal. He was claiming to be equal with, with God. He allowed men to worship him. Now, I couldn't imagine Moses or Isaiah or Jeremiah or these guys allowing some guy to worship them. It's just, that wouldn't be, a, a godly prophet wouldn't do that. Yet Jesus, this, he heals this, this blind man and the guy comes and he's so full of gratitude that he comes and he bows before Jesus and he worships him. And he, Jesus doesn't reject it, he accepts it. He demonstrated to have authority over nature. He walked on water. He calmed the storm. He, the impure spirits called him the son of God. He, when he was around them, they said, why are you bothering us? And yet they obeyed his word. One of the claims that he made that I think is most impressive is that he claimed he could give life to whoever he pleased. And he proved it. He came to his friend Lazarus's tomb four days after he died. The guy had to stink. He comes to this tomb and there are people crying because they're so sad. And Jesus sees the sadness of people and just empathizes. And the first thing he does is he cries. He cries with him. He knows he's going to raise him from the dead, and he's crying. Why? Because people are sad. People are sad, you cry with them, if you feel it. That's what he does. And yet then he goes on, he says, Lazarus, come forth. The dead guy opens his eyes, and he walks out, and everybody sees him. There are witnesses. Um, all along, as Jesus was doing all of these miracles. It says this large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there. This is some time later, Jesus goes to visit his friend Lazarus, whom he had resurrected. And this large crowd, they want to see Jesus and they want to see Lazarus. I mean, really? Did this guy, was he dead? Really? Four days? Can we go see him? Wouldn't you want to know if someone in Gresham was truly dead for four days? Wouldn't you want to go see this guy? I would. They want to go see him. And it says, they, they came out to see Jesus, but not only because of, uh, the, they found Jesus was there and came not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. Wow. And throughout all these claims, all of these miracles, all of his work, his teachings, the one, one, one driving theme throughout all of it was repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Before we read the passage we're going to look at today, keep in mind that on account of Lazarus, on account of the things he did, people were going over to Jesus and believing in him. And there's this crowd of people that go out to Bethany. It's only about three miles from Jerusalem. They go see Jesus. They see Lazarus. They want to, they, they want to see this with their own eyes. And because they see, they believe 
And so the day is over, people go home. They go back to Jerusalem. It just happens to be that it's, it's the Passover festivities are about to start. And so all the cousins, all the friends that would come to Jerusalem, this huge crowd of people are coming to town. So this crowd goes back home, and who's at their home? Cousins, friends, everybody's there. And so they're so excited about Jesus, they begin, you should see what happened in Bethany. You should see who we saw. And they start telling people about Lazarus and about the resurrection. And people get excited. Really? Is that even possible? Yeah, you know what's even cooler? Jesus is coming to town tomorrow. He's coming to the capital. So this crowd is eager. I mean, they're not going to watch some live feed. You know, they're not going to turn on their phones. They might pick up palm branches instead. But the next day, this is what happens. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. As it is written, do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, see, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. I guess I read an extra verse. So we go back and look at this. Jesus is coming to the capital. The crowd is very excited. They're going out, they're shouting. And one of the first things they shout, the first phrase you see that they're shouting is the word Hosanna. What's the word Hosanna mean anyway? Save us. It means save us. Interesting word. Why were they using it? Well, this was Passover language. Every year during Passover, the Jews would get together and they would read out of the Hallel some sections in the Psalms. And one of those sections was this one, Psalm 118, 25 through 29. So every year, you would read this if you were Jewish. It said, Lord, save us, Hosanna. Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord, we bless you. The Lord is God, and he has made his light shine on us. The reason why they were reading this passage was because they were remembering a time when they were oppressed by Egypt, when they were slaves in Egypt. And God took them and delivered them with a mighty hand. They had to slaughter a lamb. They took the blood of the lamb, put it on the doorpost so that the angel of death wouldn't come and destroy their firstborn. But every Egyptian's firstborn died. And that caused Pharaoh to release the Jews, to release, release Israel. So they would remember that, and that's, that was a yearly thing. But here, they're chanting this about Jesus, They're asking him. They're saying, save us. Save us from what? 
The Passover chant was about Egypt. But here it's about Jesus and how would he save you? What were his actions? What kind of a king would he make? Well, he didn't raise an army. He wasn't raising a rebellion. He had 12 guys that were his disciples, but they weren't rebels. They weren't that kind of a crowd. Was Jesus offering salvation then? Yes, he was. The question is, what kind of salvation? Well, he spent time with people. He healed them. He listened to them. He offered them hope in the midst of oppression. His biggest interest wasn't to offer a a temporary solution. He came to offer an eternal solution. He wanted them to have a relationship with him, with God, a chance to be a part of, of his kingdom. The kingdom of heaven is like, he would say, it's like a treasure that was found. It's like a coin that was lost and then it's found. And he would explain these things about about the kingdom and, and what it's like. He called people to repent, to repent from their sin and the consequences that were coming because of those, to a life that brought true satisfaction. A relationship with him meant that you were connected to the living bread, the living water. He taught them how to live. He taught them how to forgive your enemy. There's no sense in living with the bitterness. He taught them to to not just know about God, but to speak to him, to talk to him in prayer. He taught them how to pray. All of his life, his works, his message, they were meant to offer mankind a connection, a belonging to his kingdom, a present reality and a future promise. This kingdom relationship would come with a sense of shalom, a sense of kingdom peace. It was offered then at that moment. It was offered even under the oppression. Peace even when things are hard. This faith, this living with God would be greater than fear. Is he still offering salvation today? Yes. Is our world broken? Very much so. Do you live with guilt from choices you've made? Do the rules, the principles you live by in your home, at work, in social settings, about entertainment, do they bring real satisfaction? Do you truly find peace and purpose in what you do? Do you have hope? Hope for the present and hope for the future. I have a friend of mine, his name is Clever. Knew, met him in Bolivia a few years ago. He was a husband, had two daughters. And when they were just infants, he got up and left. He left his wife, he just took off. About seven years later, God did, did something in his life, he changed. He was reconciled to God and he felt a strong sense of, I have to go back and make things as right as possible. So he came back to town. His wife had been remarried. And uh, he showed up at church. Oh, did people give him the eye? What are you, how dare you show up? 
He came to a study group that, that met in my house. And he would come every week. He wouldn't say much because people were just talking and they, you know. But he wanted to make things right, as right as possible. And he wasn't expecting anything in return. And so I prayed with him. I talked to him. And, and, and we would just continue to talk about this. And uh, when his daughters graduated, they called him Daddy. He befriended his ex-wife's husband. Husband. He befriended the entire family again. Today, he is married to a lady whose husband left. Left her with two boys. And there is this family relationship. It's really cool. To see what God can do. Things are busted, they're broken, and God takes it. I can bring shalom, I can bring peace, I can bring my kingdom into this situation. The people chanted, Hosanna, then they also chanted, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. They were recognizing, they came to this conclusion that this Jesus was just like one of the prophets. He was from God. That he wasn't representing man's interest. How does God's representative show up anyway? From the very beginning, the choice was made not to be born in a palace but a stable. He was welcomed not by kings, but by lowly shepherds. Well, then the wise men showed up. Was to be seen as a child born in shame. Who was going to believe the whole thing about a virgin birth anyway? He wasn't born into nobility. He was seen as a carpenter's son. His purpose in his work was to represent his father and to do this in humility. Here they are, they're proclaiming him him king of Israel. What a statement. That was saying he's the promised king. The one Daniel spoke about, this is him. By his work, by his life, he had earned these titles. A king, in our terms, is more like, you know, a president maybe, although presidents have to deal with checks and balances. In those days, not necessarily. Um, a king has authority over government. What kind, of, what kind of authority did Jesus have? In his life, he already demonstrated having authority over health, nature, the spiritual world, and death itself. Now, wouldn't it be nice if he would also just govern government? If this would just be his country? That's kind of what the crowd was saying. Let's just put him in charge of government. Let's just call him king. And that's what they were aiming to do. And yet, what they intended to do, the only way God does things, I mean, the way God does things and the way men, men do them, they're not necessarily the same. The timing is not the same. It may not even be the same way. And so Jesus, he does this interesting thing. He found a young donkey and sat on it. Wow. Very interesting. Why a donkey? Why not a white horse? How does a king on a donkey make any sense? That would be like Trump showing up in Portland in like a hybrid, or better yet, like a moped. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a different message. The Romans rode horses. Jesus was sending a message of humility, of surrender, and he was very intentional. 
On the one hand, he was claiming to be king. And he, was, he proved it. He offered the kingdom. On the other hand, he was surrendering. Yet this was the plan, even in prophecy. John tells us that this happened just as it is written. And the first thing John mentions is, do not be afraid. Was fear a real thing in that context? Oh, yeah. This passage is recognizing that there is fear. And it's saying that you can't, you can't be without fear depending on how you respond to it. It's all about how you respond to the fear. Who's, who are you gonna, who's gonna be the, the, the thing you fear the most? What overcomes fear? The Bible tells us it's faith. It's knowing for sure that God is on your side. Sooner or later, he will come. The king is coming. The only things John quotes from this prophecy, it's interesting, he says, this king, all about him, well, he's seated on a donkey's colt. That sounds like it's gonna help my fear. But that's what he says. But, but if you go and you look at the actual prophecy that, it's, that he's quoting in Zechariah chapter nine, and verse nine, it mentions some other things about this king that's coming. It says he is righteous and victorious, that he is lowly. The one common denominator with all the kings of the earth is that, first of all, they are, they are far from perfect. Oftentimes, they, they're the cause of fear. But this, this Messiah, he is righteous. He's not corrupt. In fact, when Jesus came on the scene, he had no sin. There was no fault in him. He is lowly. Does this mean weak? Not at all. A lowly one is one who identifies with his people, a humble king. Jesus said this, take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. I love this picture because for me it's probably different than for you. I grew up in Paraguay and in Paraguay we had these things that we call carretas. It's basically a huge ox cart and the wheels are huge and they're you know wooden and they're pulled by two ox or oxen. Uh, so they're pulled by these two oxen. But the times I've seen them, these beasts are massive, but they're very docile. They're very gentle. And, and they're servants. I've seen these things carry huge trees, huge logs pulled out of the forest by these two ox. Je- Jesus isn't saying here, I'm weak. He's saying, he's saying, he's saying how does he? He's saying, I'm like an ox. I'm, and carry my yoke, learn from me. I'm gentle, humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. So, the reality is that today, when we sit here, we can't see the body of Jesus. We can't see him in person. I get it. We can't see him. But the reality today is is this, that Jesus is here. He's here. The very person of the Holy Spirit is among us here right now. The same message Jesus preached long ago, this, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, it stands today. The question is, and it was back then, is who is this Jesus? If you're here today and this Jesus, um, you don't know this Jesus, just please know that Jesus wants to have 
a relationship with you. Please understand that God isn't interested in religion. Just as he was real back then, he's real today, and he invites you into a friendship. He wants a relationship with you. Just like those people back then cried, save us. You can ask him, you can say, save me today. He came to bring something greater than salvation from temporary oppression. He wants us to realize we need saving from our brokenness, from trying to find satisfaction in all the wrong places, from the guilt that we carry because of the choices we've made. He wants to save us from a broken relationship that we have with God, and he wants us to reconcile this relationship to him. His offer, the kingdom, the kingdom heaven, shalom, this peace, is a standing offer right now. Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and, and burdened, and I will give you rest. You're not gonna find this kind of peace anywhere but in Jesus. The reality is also that there are many of us here who know Jesus, and this is so exciting to us that there might be someone here who doesn't know him, and he will get to know him today just like we know him. But for those of us who know Jesus, there is a question. Does Jesus have the final say in your life? Does he, he lived for you. His life was all about living for us. Who do you live for? Do you call him Lord and God, yet maybe your life is all about something else? I knew a man who lived his entire life about work. It was all focused on work. He was a disconnected husband and a disconnected father. Went to his funeral, and none of his kids would speak at his funeral. This man was a man who supposedly knew Christ, his kids, one of them is a missionary. And yet they wouldn't speak at his, his very funeral. He missed something. Do you live your life trying to find fulfillment in a relationship? To find satisfaction? If you're looking to someone to fill the needs that only God can fill, that's not fair to the other person. You're looking in the wrong place. Who do you work for? When you think of your actions this past week, what things did you do for yourself? What works did you intentionally do for, for him? Did you love him? Did you spend time with him? Did you love people? I have to ask myself the same, did I love Jesus this past week? And to be honest, it's far from perfect. But I have to ask myself this, and then ask yourself, who or what do you surrender to? When you think about emotions, pains, and fear, health issues, accidents, people hurting you, perhaps losing control, financial struggles, even death itself. And in Jesus' case, man, what a horrific death. He fought it with surrender. He was afraid of the cross. In a few days, we're going to see that. Yet he didn't retaliate. He didn't avoid it. He knew that this was the, what the father wanted. And he wanted what his father wanted because there is no better choice than what the father wants. How do we fight our fears? Do we surrender to God? I'm not asking you to ignore realities. 
Jesus didn't. He steadily surrendered to his Father's will. He trusted the one who would allow the very cross to happen. And he invites us to have no fear. Faith isn't necessarily the absence of fear, but how we respond in the face of it. That even though the present struggle is real, he has come and he will come. The Almighty's hands are real and he is with us. I'm gonna invite you to respond. Something we do at Comunidad often in the fourth service and I know we pray here often as well, but I'd like to invite you to pray. Specifically, I'd like you to pray two prayers. And the first one is, Lord, please show me who or what I'm surrendering to in my life. And the second prayer is, please show me your truth, what you think about this and the reality of who you are. So I'm gonna ask you to just take a minute of, of silence and right there where you are, pray the first prayer and just take a few seconds, a few, 30 seconds or so, 40 seconds, just to listen. Listen to the answer to that prayer and then ask and then pray the second prayer and just wait. Could you do that? Let's do that right now. Thank you for listening to Sermon Audio from Grace Community Church. For more information about service times and ways to connect, visit us online at gracecc.net.